you know, nothing is going to work if you can't get along and collaborate with the person next to you. And that that goes for friendships and, uh, again, for, for professional relationships. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. No matter what you do or where you are in your life right now, I'm pretty sure you've heard the word no more than once. And some of those no's might make you feel like you don't want to get out of bed. This podcast is here to tell you, you're not alone. If all these people can walk through the valley of no's to get to their yes, why can't you? Welcome. As usual, I'm so happy you're joining us. Our numbers are steadily rising, which means that you are connecting with my guests and the subject matter here on 10,000 No's, and you're telling people about it. It makes me feel vindicated because really, when I launched this podcast a little over a year ago, I was following my instinct that listeners would want to hear stories of struggle from successful people and hopefully identify with them as they two had to overcome some hardships to get to where they are today. Now, many of you will not relate to today's guest, Isabel White, because she is a freak. I can say that because I know her. And while I often say that my guests make me feel like a slacker, Isabel really makes me want to crawl back under the rock from which I came because she has accomplished so much on such a high level in so many different arenas. Uh, But her life wasn't without setbacks. As you'll hear, a major setback came in the form of her mother's breast cancer diagnosis when Isabel was only nine. An only child, she eventually lost her mother on the day she was supposed to get her driver's license. Not one for self-pity and wallowing in pain, Isabel went on to accomplish some pretty incredible achievements, including, but not limited to, playing D1 field hockey and softball at Yale despite having blown out her knee in high school, working for Bill Clinton in the White House, working for Harvey Weinstein at Miramax, leaving Miramax to spend a couple of years in Costa Rica, where she found a husband temporarily. I won't spoil the whole interview, but let's just call her dynamic and she can tell you the rest. Luckily, she's funny and thoughtful and kind, which makes hearing about her incredible journey a real joy. Isabel White. I never felt like I was missing out on a camaraderie or a a partnership, a friendship, because I didn't have a sibling. It was always, I was surrounded by kids. And then I I got the benefits of being an only child. That was, you know, Which are what? What would you describe as the benefits? Getting all of your parents' attention? I mean, yeah, you know, my parents weren't huge on lavishing with the tent. You know, we had like a a, a really lovely, but, you know, modest, not just uh, in terms of accommodations life. Like it was, there was not a lot of, um, you know, that's probably not accurate. You know, I'm sure anybody, I'm lucky to have had the attention of my parents that I had. It just wasn't like... um, overly lavish with attention. I was, my mom was strict. It was, uh, totally appropriate, right? I guess if I'm looking back, I'm probably take after my mom and my own parenting style, but my dad, uh, did come to every single one of my games. If I had a sibling, he probably would not have been able to do that. So there were things that I definitely benefited from, you know, we only had a two bedroom house. I, I had my own room. That was a benefit. Uh, I didn't have to share my toys when I was in my own house. All of those things, uh, help with homework, getting picked up from school. I did have all that. And for that, I am lucky, but it never felt like, I don't, I don't think that I'm like that classic 
Oh, yeah, only child, of course. Yeah, of course she's an only child. I don't think I'm that person. Yeah, because of the community around you, probably. maybe. I'm just yeah. trying to think that now all the people who know me are probably dying laughing. like Thinking, oh, she's totally an only child. Only child. <laughs> but, but I don't think of myself that way, so. Yeah, and and um, so w- one of the things that I, you know, wasn't sure if we would kind of even talk about um, what was just a, you know, 10,000 no's talking about overcoming adversity was losing your mom at an early age, 15, but she was diagnosed with breast cancer at, at what age? And she was sick for seven years. So I was at, I was nine when she was diagnosed. I remember the day she told me like it was yesterday. I remember thinking, you know, like, Wait, did I say I was seven? I think I was nine. I said nine. nine. Yeah, nine. Um, uh, I remember thinking like, sure, cool, whatever, cancer. Who like who knows anything about that? And I remember she came in that night when she was putting me to bed, and she asked me if I was scared she was going to die, and I was like, what? Why would I even think such a thing? That seems completely outlandish. Never crossed my mind. And honestly, it didn't even cross my mind for years after that. Even after she said that. Yeah, I mean it. Eventually, I got older and she got sicker. It was many years. She went through many different uh, iterations of treatment. She did, you know, surgery and chemotherapy and radiation and, and and remission and then back and lost her patience with Western medicine and did some um, some exper- more experimental things. She's one of the things she did, by the way, have you seen Wild Wild Country or have you heard about Wild Wild Country? Well, I just interviewed Mark Duplass, who's an executive producer okay. on it. So he just told me about it in the episode that comes out next week. So, uh, I have not seen it yet, no. So there's they're, they're part of the subject of Wild Wild Country is a guy named the Bhagwan Rajneesh. Um, and he I don't know enough about it, but he's in Oregon. And my mother at one point went and spent some time with him and walked on hot coals. It was called the Firewalk Experience. I have her t-shirt from the Firewalk Experience. And it's when I saw the little tidbit that I've seen of Wild Wild Country, and I have so many friends who are obsessed. So congratulations to friend of the pod, Mark Duplass. Um, uh, I was like, jaw dropped. Like, that's the guy. I have a can opener with his picture on it from when my mom walked on hot coals. And what year was that? I mean, it had to be in like 1988-ish. Wow. Is that where Tony Robbins got the walking on coals? Which, by the way, Deirdre and I did with him. It, it, we got invited did. to one of it. Yeah. That. And did, did it burn your feet? No. It was kind of crazy. You you kind of like, you get all pumped up and he kind of pumps you up through the day. And you're like, you know, you go over. It, it was so, uh, it was so tribal. It was a full moon. We were outside. And we happened to be sitting the whole weekend next to Gerard Butler. So we kind of got tight with him. And it was like, I'm like, if I'm ever going to like walk over coals, it's going to be next to King Leonidas. That is a bond that will never be broken. It was Gerard Butler. It was so, it was was very surreal experience. Um, But no, didn't, didn't hurt the feet the next day. Well, impressive. Another thing, my mother also went to New York and she pursued treatment with this doctor who, um, and I remember my father, he was a way more pragmatic person and he was not into the Eastern medicine, the acupuncture. He thought it was like a bunch of hooey and all the things that, you know, you might expect a white male in the 80s who worked in a, gov- a civil service government job for 30 years and had been in the military to think. And he really protested my mother seeing this doctor in New York City was named Dr. Ravisi. 
which I remember so clearly is one of the only details I remember. Anyway, years after my mother died, there was a huge trial for which I think my father had to testify. I could be saying this wrong. My mother might have had to testify. And no one's alive for me to ask this question, yeah. unfortunately. But um, And he went to prison for poisoning his patients with his chemical therapy. Wow. And my mother was one of his patients. Anyway, yeah, so Holy. I think that maybe is one of the other reasons that I my I don't have that sort of classic only child center of the universe upbringing because, because I had to grow up pretty early, like in some respects. I had to, you know, my father was super present. He was there for me every day, every practice, pick me up, drop me off. I mean, I couldn't ask for more um, in terms of parenting. And I know there are a lot of people who don't have any of that. Yeah. Uh, and so for that, I'm lucky. But yeah, I had to watch my mother, you know, get diagnosed, go through treatment, get sick. And I was sitting next to her when she died, which was really crazy. At 15. Yeah. And my and my dad, I had actually, I think I had just turned 16 within a couple of weeks. And she died the day I was supposed to get my driver's license. Oh. So that obviously got delayed for a few months. I was the, the last of my friends for that reason to get. And I remember my dad so in D.C., we all go at the end of the school year to Rehoboth, to Delaware, Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and it's called Beach Week, and it's like completely debaucherous, and it's super fun, and it's, I mean, I have no idea what our parents were thinking, letting us, you know, <laughs> co-signing on the rental of a house even, you know, um, and sending us off to just party our faces off for a week. And so we were at Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, my dad called and had to tell yeah. me to come home. I had to leave in the middle of the week, and I remember... A lot of my friends, they got a van and we all got on a van and we all drove back together. It was really sweet and supportive. And and my dad sat me down when I got home and he was like, your mother's going to die. This is the end. And I think you should go talk to her. And I was like this teenager, you know, really awkward teenager. And I was like, I, I can't do that. I don't, what am I going to say? She, she was not conscious really, right? You know, she was lying in a hospice bed in our basement. And I had to go down and be like, I just want you to know... You're, you were an amazing mother. I know it's, you were sick and it's hard. And I, you know, forgive you for all the times you weren't, couldn't be here because I know you were trying to fight for your health so you could be here later and I'm going to miss you and I love you. And it, it was so stressful for me to do. It was so hard, but I'm so glad I did it. Like, I really am grateful for my dad because I have no regrets about that. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't feel like I left anything you, out there Was it, her. were you crying through that whole thing or did you feel detached and like out of body? You know, I probably detached and out of body. You know, when you're a teenager, it's just like, you don't want to cry. Like, you just want to be the tough, like, you don't want it to be awkward. I remember when my mom died, not really even fine, like wanting to cry, sort of suppressing that, um, Except for I remember at uh, her memorial, finally, it was like waterworks. And I was sitting in the front row. I was asked, to, you know, if I wanted to speak. I said, no, I didn't want to speak. It was too stressful for me. I haven't spoken at either of my parents' memorials. It's, it's just not my – so it's something I don't think I'm capable of doing. Yeah. But my, my one of my closest friends, Marisa, was sitting behind me, and she just put her hand on my shoulder, and it was waterworks. And I was wearing one of my mom's shirts. It was white, and it was, like, covered on my chest with tears. And I didn't want to even turn around because I didn't want people to see me crying. I mean, how fucked up is that? Yeah. With my, well, you know, yeah. at 16 with a dead mother, like, yeah, if there's any time to cry, that would be the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, but it's... Interesting that someone just putting their hand on your back is kind of what allowed you to or either caused or I would say allowed you to kind of like let it go. Yeah. You know, just somebody like reaching out and being there for you. I can't even I can't even imagine what that was like. 
Um, you know, interestingly enough, the recovery wasn't as bad as you might think. I didn't feel like my life had fallen apart because I didn't have my mom taking me to shop for prom and this, that, and the other thing. You, you're a teenager. You're so self-absorbed. I was really able to pick up and just like get back to my life and get back to my sports and channel my energies into something else. And I wasn't a wreck, which anybody would have excused me for being. Well, you also were prepared being. in a way yes, because you were dealing while. with it for a long time, right? right? And I was much less so prepared when my dad died. How old were you when your dad died? It was right after my youngest son, Tony, was born, nine weeks after he was born. And he he was in the hospital having had surgery and caught an infection and died in a day. Like just a, a little, like a... It was called C. diff. So it's like an internal bacterial infection that somebody might get in the hospital. And because his defenses were down from surgery and all the antibiotics... But was the surgery just elective surgery? No, it was prostate cancer. So okay. I'm like so, the who's who of the cancer family tree. Like you name yeah. a cancer, somebody in my family has had it, you know. So, um, but it was, sh- I was shocked. I didn't expect it. And that, and also I was an adult. Right. So you're more able to process emotions. You're not as scared of being emotional. And I was um, I had 30 years of, of an adult relationship with my dad. I never had that with my mom. My mom was always my mom. My dad became my friend, you know, and then he became a grandparent to my children. And there was all these other layers that made it really like immediately more challenging um, to, to accept. And it's still hard for you know, the loss of both of my parents is hard. My mom, I just sort of went back to being a teenager, no problem. And then, of course, over the years, yeah. it wears on you and you start to really comprehend and cope with the loss. Just different. It was really different for both of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because, you know, when I was thinking of being young, that that's where it would be so difficult. That's interesting and surprising to me to hear the the reverse was actually true. Um, so I don't, I don't. I mourn like different parts of things. You know, I lost what I lost with my mother was having a mother in my formative years. My teenage I was a teenage girl, having a mother in my teenage years. You know, I don't think of the loss of my mother as the, a grandparent to my children because I never had that in the first place. I wasn't even close to having that with her. Yeah. With my dad, that was the gut punch. Yeah. You know, I had seen him with my oldest son for three years and how amazing their relationship was. And, and, and so I could feel that loss. I could see that loss, you know, so there's just you different things that you sort of focus on in your grief. Yeah. Well, one of the things you said that, that, uh, kind of makes sense with what I know of you is that you had to grow up early. And so you were kind of this, had this ability to, uh, take, take charge in a way, um, that's, you know, the joke with you is that you've had all of these careers and you've done really well with each one like you just you know you could wake up tomorrow and say you're going to be uh I don't I don't know what you're going to be a skydiver and then maybe, next thing we know we'll, you'll be you know like the best and um so that makes sense and I, and I also know that you had a pretty intense uh, athletic background and then it sounds like you had about 47 knee reconstructions I've had a lot so. of knee surgeries yeah that was another no yeah. That was like one of, you know, not to, I'm not comparing it to the death of my parents, but, um, but I really did pour myself into athletics when I was a kid. It was my passion. It's really still is my passion. I'm now pouring it into my, my kids' athletics. Uh, but I was really dedicated to sports and I was decent at it. It was sort of my signature at school, right? It was what I did. It was what I was known for, if you could say I was known, which I wasn't, but, um, uh, and, 
uh, field hockey was my my most passionate uh, sport. I also played basketball and softball, and I blew my left knee out when I was 16 months, actually, after my mom died. And I remember right after I blew my knee out, this popped into my mind when I, when I was thinking about this the other day. Right after I blew my knee out, it was an ACL injury, Sports Illustrated. I was a reader of Sports Illustrated at the time. And um, the, their, the cover of that that same week it was weekly is it still weekly yeah the cover that same week as I got my diagnosis was the dread injury and it was about ACL injuries and how athletes never come back from them and I tried I did play sports for the remainder of my you know high school years and for a couple years in college and then my my knee was really degraded and it kept slipping on me and you just couldn't I couldn't go anymore yeah so I had it reconstructed what did you play? So you went to Yale undergrad. I went to Yale undergrad. Terrible school, by the way. Um, <laughs> and and you played field hockey there? I played field hockey and softball. I okay. played both sports. And I just sort of walked on to the softball team. Um, but it was super fun. It was like nothing I had experienced in high school. Like really good softball players. So much so that we won the Ivy League championship. I had very little to do with our championship uh, because I was, again, a walk-on who was um, not as advanced in my softball skills as my teammates were. I mean, yeah. not not advanced enough not to be on the team, but... But you weren't a standout. No. no. Yeah. But I have an Ivy ring, and, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll, 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 you know, take credit for that. That's very cool. Super good at cheering. And and um, and then you went, you came, you came out of school, and your first job... Out of college is what this is 1996. Six. And, Aging myself. And you're doing advance work for yes. President Clinton. Right. So as you mentioned, I grew up in D.C. And um, the at the time, my father's significant other, a woman named Catherine Hirsch, who is my stepmother 30 years later to this day, grandmother to my children and an absolute delight of a human being. One of her close friends was the head of the advance operation for Bill Clinton and the White House. And he was in the process of putting together teams to travel the country to advance Bill Clinton. So I got really lucky, um, and he agreed to put me out on the road, uh, which was really a trial, right? He was like, I'll put you out, but the rest is up to you kind of a thing. Um, And a number of my close friends growing up, Marisa, the woman who I've already mentioned whose hand was, she also was doing advance, and Noah another good friend of ours. And so we sort of, it was like a gathering, right? We came back together. And um, and I remember I, my first trip out on the road, I want to say was to Lansing, Michigan. Uh, and he did a 30,000-person a rally at like a, on like a train tie in Lansing, Michigan. It was so nuts. It was, I mean, I was working my tail off. It was, you know, for people who were seasoned advanced you know, folks, uh, just doing whatever it was they told me to do all hours of the day and night, um, you know, blisters on your feet. And it was super exhilarating. It was amazing to be, you know, walking past the Secret Service because I had a, a, an, a staff pin that let me go wherever and a radio in my ear. And during this event and like the proximity to power and the believing in this candidate, it just was really amazing. And, you know, I guess I did a good enough job to where they put me out on the road again pretty quickly. And that that's what I did through the election. So that was, I guess, like, what, four or five months that I did that. And it yeah. was fun. 
What really were the fun. qualities that you had that made you good? Because that's what I'm, you know, I, I, we will kind of touch on all the, you know, you've done so many different things. But I guess what I'm interested in is like, what what is it that you think is the the number one quality, I hate to say like X factor, but that kind of like if, if you were to, if I were to pull a bunch of your friends and they were going to go, Isabel, this is what she does. This is what she does really well. She does it better than anybody else I know. What is that? And was it just God given? Was it taught? Or is it a combination of the two that, what, what, what would you say that is? Um, I, I, I would probably say relationship management and maintenance, developing relationships. Man- you know, I, like, I, I can kind of get along with most people. I certainly could then. You know, I understood my, my place, right? And I was um, affable and, like, easygoing, and I had a good work ethic, which was really important. Wasn't a complainer. Um, and, you know, you obviously also want to be competent, right? That's pretty important. But um, both in my friendships, which are, are very long lasting, and in my professional relationships, you know, nothing is going to work if you can't get along and collaborate with the person next to you. And that, that goes for friendships and, uh, again, for, for professional relationships. Uh, and, you know, you, you need to trust that person and that person needs to trust that you're going to get your work done and that you're going to do it successfully. And if you don't have a good rapport with them, that trust won't be there and things won't work. And I think probably that's a big part of the reason that I've succeeded and, and where I haven't succeeded. And there have been plenty of places. There was a breakdown in my interpersonal relationship with somebody with whom I was working or for whom I was working. And there's a couple instances that come right to my mind. Okay. So don't, you don't have to name names, but, but talk about what that breakdown is. And like, was it, you know, I don't know if I care about fault, but is it something where if you look back, you go, oh, I could have done this and it would have solved the problem, but instead I did that. Or was it more on the other person in your view? It doesn't matter. Of course, I think it was not my fault. Yeah. But, and I will say that, and some of these are actually, um, uh, interestingly enough, later in my professional life, right? So I think probably I started to really figure out uh, who I was, what I was capable of, and what I was going to take, like what I was going to stand for. Um, uh, and a lot of times when I didn't get, you know, when the equation wasn't right, there was friction. Um, I, I really do think in, in both of these instances, there were people who felt threatened, by me, and not because I'm such an imposing person, but be, they would have felt threatened by anybody who was coming in. It wasn't a job that they were psyched to have somebody come and do, and certainly not maybe somebody with my personality or my experience. Um, one of the jobs, the person, uh, it was filled by not him, right? Like he, I didn't mean to say him, but the person didn't fill that job. Uh, it was somebody else uh, in the organization filled it. So I was. I wasn't, I wasn't his person, right? I, this isn't not making any sense. I'm trying to be diplomatic about it, but yeah. and apologies for that. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I think also uh, in terms of like an interpersonal relationship breaking down, uh, trust and um, respect are really big things. And uh, I want to trust and respect somebody and I want to feel trusted and respected. And when I don't, 
like you're gonna anybody. Say yeah, I'll get my back up. And, you know, and not always in the most graceful way. And sure, I'm sure I could improve uh, when it comes to that, uh, you know, in terms of like expressing myself in a more diplomatic way or or being willing to lie down and take more than I was at that point willing well, to lie and, down. And, and take yet, more. do you think that that's kind of what has led you to be able to not you don't seem like you're defined by your job or by your role, which is, has allowed you to kind of eject from each of them and start something new, which might be a good thing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I lo- it's sort of, again, this has for me gone for personal and professional relationships. I think the the, the older you get and the more you experience the better you know yourself and the more able you are to determine what you're willing to put up with and what you will thrive in uh, and succeed in. You know, I left the entertainment industry after 10 years of working in... um, At the Weinstein Company, was it? I started... It wasn't the Weinstein Company at the time. I started at Miramax right after the Gore campaign. I started at Miramax, um, lived in New York, uh, the Costa Rica, I had a brief two year. I went on vacation to Costa we'll get, Rica. We can get to that. We should years. definitely get to that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, moved out to LA. I worked at uh, some of uh, uh, the Yari Film Group and at Fox and sort of a, a couple of different things. But eventually I, I was had my first kid. And when I left my job to have my first kid, I sort of said to myself, you know what? Not doing that again. It's not, the, the entertainment world. Not for me. What was it that you didn't like? Um, Okay, so, you know, I think there are a lot of wonderful people who work in entertainment, some of my best friends, my husband, right? I think on a whole, the industry doesn't value the right things in people, right? I think um, failing up is a norm. I have found myself in situations where I'm working with, not with, with I understand, for people who got to where they are because it was easier to put them there than to deal with, you know, whatever either behavioral issues or or failures or whatever it was. It just, it wasn't like, like, um, being a decent, competent person was not, uh, a valued. It wasn't a plus. It actually was a, a minus for you, or it still is. I would think in the entertainment industry, like the worst, person you are, the higher you're likely to rise. And and I just I wasn't... I hate to hear that, but I think, yeah, um, I, in a I, lot of cases, you're probably right. I think that, I mean, that certainly was my... But I also just got to the point where I was like, I'm now at a high enough point in my career where, where I'm co- going to be constantly interacting with these people that... I don't necessarily think are good people. And it's it's grueling work. You know, you're traveling a lot. You're putting in a lot of hours, a lot of time. And at the end of the day, you're like, okay, so now I'm doing all this work. I'm here at 11 o'clock at night. I remember my first job in entertainment. I'm like, it's 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, so somebody who's probably not that great a person gets more money in their pocket when this movie that I'm working on that I don't give a shit about, like a horror film or whatever it is, puts more money in their pocket because it does well versus when I was working at 11 o'clock at night in Nashville, Tennessee on Al Gore's campaign because I really, and by the way, there are some pretty horrible people in politics too, (laughs) but you, you have a sense of purpose, you know, and like it's, you know, you're, I really felt like a camaraderie with the, the people in politics that was, it carries you much further. And it's, it doesn't, it's hard to find that in entertainment. Yeah. So I left and I was like, we're done. Just done. Yeah. And, and, and not you, like, not like 
forget you, I'm out the door. You know, just kind of like, you know what, not for me. That's cool. I know it works great for other people, but it's not really my thing. Yeah. Now, what about when you were working on, so you've had so many different I know, stints here, but you were working a couple of years at, at CNN as a PA on Crossfire. Yeah. So do, you remember, do you remember Crossfire? How was that? I, like I told you, I'm a little bit yeah. of a political dunce, but my <laughs> okay. dad is a, a big Crossfire fan. I think well, he, Crossfire, at the time that I worked there, was, um, it's really funny, actually, how my career came together. Uh, I My first job working on uh, for Advance, I just was slated as a, a press assistant, what's called a P2 for all anyone that listens that is uh, knows advanced that P2, P press two. So just happened, that's where they put me. And so my job was to deal with the traveling press corps and the local press corps for any event and make sure that they had all their accommodations and their positions on the risers and phone lines were dropped. I mean, it's so different today because, I mean, we're not I had like meetings with the phone company to drop a phone line for a tent in the middle of a square right. next to it. You know, it's, it's different. doesn't happen like that today. But, and, and so all of a sudden I became a press person, right? Just cause I was a P2, like he could have put me anywhere else. And then yeah. my, who knows where I would have gone. And my career in the years following was always on the, on the PR side of things. Um, so so what was the question? The question was, <laughs> I, I'm almost wondering, did you think of Crossfire as oh, Crossfire. the entertainment field or politics no. world? What Press was and politics. Press so and I politics. left the White House. I had some like sort of piddly entry level jobs at the White House. And I, I got a job at CNN as an, an AD or a PA. I don't even remember what the term. And again, probably completely different today yeah. uh, for a show Crossfire. Um, and like, it was a wonderful staff, a really small group of people, like four or five of us on the show, you would think it'd be more. And then the, the hosts, Bill Press and Pat Buchanan and Robert Novak were the main hosts, Robert Novak and Pat Buchanan on the right, Bill Press on the left. Tucker Carlson, interestingly enough, was, uh, the. How old was he? Sub. He oh. was a CNN, you know, reporter. Yeah. And he, when Bill, excuse me, when Pat. Buchanan or Robert Novak was unavailable, he would come and sit in their shoes. He now, of course, has a huge career yeah. on Fox. But it was really fun. I learned so much. You know, every day we would come in and have meetings and figure out what the topic was going to be, figure out what guests we were going to book. I was in charge of all the recess. I, uh, excuse me, the research. I had to go up to the editing room and edit the open, you know, at the beginning of the show where it's like all that. I mean, I learned how to edit it. I mean, it was great. Yeah. I I worked weekends sometimes in the newsroom. I mean, it's, it was a really valuable experience. Yeah. I had the headset on in the studio. I was basically the stage manager for the show. It was, I think, back about really fondly on that. You, you do. You yeah, know, I, like I totally yeah. do. There, there wasn't a lot of... Well, I can't Negatives. believe it's only five of you. Like, there were five people yeah. on the There crew, was the or? executive producer crazy. of the show and, like, a book, two, two bookers and me. I mean, there might have only been four of us. That's nuts to me. Um, it's great. The, the kind of skeleton crew is the best. Yeah. Um, so, so when did your you, – you go to – you go uh, – and you worked at Miramax for three years, and then you describe it as you went on vacation to Costa Rica, and you stayed for two years. You got married. You yes, got all first, of that first is marriage. true. First marriage. What you know? Give us that story. How old were you? I was not as young as you might expect. I was twenty nine. So I, so I, 
the, the sort of long, I won't make it too long, but the longer story is I, I never took a semester abroad in college. I graduated. And as I said, I went right on to the, into camp presidential campaign politics. And I did worked at the White House, CNN, left CNN to move to Nashville. Actually, the, yeah, left CNN, moved to Nashville uh, and ran the advance operation for Gore's campaign. Uh, we know how that ended up. Uh not not well. Uh, yeah. Spoiler alert. And <laughs> um, and moved to New York and just pounded the pavement. Uh, for some reason, I had in my head well, that I was going to work at um, in entertainment. Got the job at Miramax, um, and it was it, Miramax was sort of on the tail end, of, like of the bell curve of its most successful time. I remember one of the first movies I worked on there was um, Bridget Jones. Uh, right? about so Shakespeare in like, Love? Were you so there for that? So it was that? after Shakespeare in Love. Like okay. It was the, right in, in, in 2000, beginning of 2001. Okay. Uh, Amelie. But okay, so fast forward to... Well, you know what? Let me just, let me pause you. We'll get to Costa Rica, but now that you're talking Miramax, and I don't, you know, I don't want to pull you into that world if you don't want to talk about that, but just because of everything that's kind yeah. of gone on in the news uh, in this last year... Um, your experience there, you know, I, I don't know if you really I, want to talk I had about it. I had like a, I had pr- what I think the majority of people had there, which was, it was really hard work and for a man who had a really um, explosive temper uh, and some strange working habits, uh, you know, like chain smoking in, in a tiny room in a conference room where we're all sitting there, you know, like just ri- little sort of strange things that made the working environment challenging. I never had an, a, a personal issue with Harvey. I, 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 he seemed to respect me. He gave me a lot of credit for whatever it was that I was able to contribute to meetings. I saw other people have have problems, but mostly as a result of his temper. I had no um, inkling of uh, the the issues that were going on, the, the, the harassment and assault issues that were going on. Um, but I did learn of them long before they were reported they uh-huh. uh, from various friends of mine who were reported. You know, it was like, as I'm sure you've come to learn that, it was sort of the open secret and, and not just But like, when you were working there, you didn't... No, no idea. Really? No. Yeah. I was never, you know, this is going to sound so terrible, but, um, you know, I came to Miramax from essentially from the Clinton White House. So I went from working for Bill Clinton to Harvey Weinstein. And my joke now is that I'm starting to take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a good one. I've used it before, but it's, That's good. you know. It's a good one. There's an element of truth there. I'm starting to take it personally. Um <laughs> I, uh, but that, Costa Rica, you so Costa Rica. Costa so you you finish at Miramax. So, or so you're I'm still working, working at for Miramax, them? and and we went through a season where we had um, a movie, a Scorsese movie called Gangs of New York, mm-hmm. and a the movie Sam Rockwell's movie Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, yeah. and Chicago, and it was this. So Miramax was all about award season, and so we went through this really grueling awards season. Uh, and Chicago won Best Picture, and it was a huge, it felt like a victory and a huge achievement. And I went on vacation to Costa Rica with who a woman who is to this day one of my closest friends, Heather Phillips. You know Heather. Oh, yeah. Right. So she and I worked on Chicago together. She was the lead publicist, and I was the head of field at the time. So we had just been through the trenches together, and we were ready for a vacation. And we went to Costa Rica, and I remember sitting there thinking, I'm, I don't want to go back. I'm not going back. I don't want to go back. 
Like I had never taken a semester abroad. I had just been in hard charging job after hard charging job, you know, straight from high school, worked every summer during high school, worked every summer during college, internships, whatever. I had never had a break. And I was like, I don't really care about, about this job. And I don't really care about any relationship I'm in. I don't have kids. I'm not married. This is my last chance. And I remember people saying to me, you're not going to do that. Every time somebody said to me, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I went back and I gave notice and I put my stuff in storage and I moved to Costa Rica for two years. And it was glorious. It was really lovely. The, that place. So you knew before you went, you were not going to come back. No, no. It was like but the last you, day when we were faced with oh, going then, oh, to the airport. Oh, then you came back and you said, and you I had to give in, notice in and put my stuff in storage. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. I thought, sorry, I misunderstood. Yeah. I thought you, before no. you went. I was, I was sitting on the beach faced with the prospect of getting in the car and driving to the airport and felt like, I can't do it. I can't leave. I don't want to go. I'm going to, I'm going to move here. And so I did. I put my stuff in storage. I didn't know anybody and I didn't speak Spanish. And I got on a plane uh, with my friend Noah and she helped me find a place to live. Went and negotiated of the purchase of a car, a Suzuki Samurai, since long since outlawed in the United States, <laughs> since they flipped over. Flipped them, yeah. uh, had a picture of Jesus in the stick shift. So we called it Jesus. And, you know, I had no agenda there other than to, you know, just take a load off. I read a book a week. I read all of, and that's when I first read Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove. And it was like, to this day is my favorite. If you have not read that book, it's. I have not. The absolute. It's a Western, which is not really my thing. But anyway, Moneyball, book a week. It was great. Uh, How far into your trip did you meet? Who the guy that eventually became pretty your quickly. Husband. His name was Rigo. Pretty quickly, really lovely person. We, I mean, it was a great, fun time. And when it was time to come back to the states two years later, uh, and I came back because I was working on the Kerry campaign, we, we were sort of faced with this. I had helped him get a visa. It's really hard to get a visa, it turns out. And I had helped him navigate the process, and he had a visitor's visa tourist visa, I guess is the right word. And he came back to LA and we, tr you know, really tried to make it work. And the visa ended after, I think it was six months. So we were faced with the decision to either get married. Um, and we were in a, like a committed relationship. It's not like some guy I met at the donut shop who yeah. needed a visa yeah. to get married or to end the relationship. And I don't think either one of us felt like the, those options were the right options, right? No, neither one of us was like marriage is the, is the answer. And, and we weren't ready to give up on the relationship either. But we were like, okay, so we'll try it. And it, we learned pretty quickly that it didn't work. It wasn't going to work, yeah. Not, not. 100% because of our, I mean, he, yes, it became about our relationship, but he just, you know, it's a real adjustment for somebody who's grown up in, in a culture like Costa Rica yeah. to come to the States and in Los Angeles, a big city and hard charging and, you know, really having to get after it. And he wasn't psyched to get after it. And it turns out I wasn't psyched to be the only one in the household who was doing all the getting after it. Right. Right. So it became, there was friction and it just, he Did wanted to go home. Did you ever have a part home. of you that wanted to go back to Costa Rica or were you done after those two years? I mean, I always have a, 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 a love for Costa Rica. I, you know, I have dreams and so does Chris, my husband of, of like taking a year off and going and living somewhere like that. It just feels really necessary, I think, to be able to have that kind of a mental break. Um, it, it did wonders for me uh, when I went there at 29 and came back at 31. 
And I think it would do wonders for me again. Uh, I didn't, wouldn't have to be Costa Rica. We went to Hawaii for spring break, and I was like, "All right, let's do it. Let's get, what's it going to cost to buy yeah. a house here?" It turns out this a lot. <laughs> turns, <laughs> out, <laughs> turns out it's super. Turns out it's not such a great expensive. idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, I could I could move to a tropical place tomorrow. I really could. Yeah. I don't feel any. You know, the hard thing would be friends and family. Yeah. I don't feel anything else about you know life here that I need feel like I need to preserve. Well, and you have your kids here, so they've got their community and sports and all that. So that it would be tougher now at this stage, I think. Um, Although I hear, you know, read blog postings of families who take a year off and travel around the world. And it feels like so idyllic and wonderful and I'm jealous and I want to move to Byron Bay. I think that's a bigger question. I think if, if financially, if you could do that and not have it be, you know, kill you, Right. It probably would be a pretty great experience. Yeah. And who knows where you end up at the end of that year or if you just come back and you just look at it as like a leave of absence right. from your life. But I think that's probably a big – yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah. I wonder who, I, how many I think that would. in reality, though, it would be hard. I mean, I think I would kill everyone in my family <laughs> by like yeah. week three. <laughs> you know, it's just a lot of together time. You know, there's no <laughs> – See, you know, and like traveling and hassling and packing. And I mean, by the way, I'm already put out by how much packing and unpacking I have to do just like yeah. for like a spring break trip or a summer trip. You know, doing that like as a way of life, I just it's probably not doesn't speak to my personality and the way I dream at my. Yeah, yeah. But I'll it sounds good. And yeah, if there was a movie about it, it would be cool. But when you're actually the one doing it. Yeah, I'm like all the practical bit. parts. I'm like, well, where do you get a prescription filled if you need to get a prescription? You know, it's like yeah. I just there's too many things that. Yeah. This, the lack of stability probably wouldn't appeal to my nature. Well, let me uh, kind of change tracks for a second. You you were talking about, at some point you told me about some nightmare encounter. I think when you were working for Kerry, you had like a nightmare encounter with Bruce Springsteen, who's oh one God. of your idols. What? Cause just because I am interested for the purposes oh of this show particularly, what, what happened and what, oh where there's got to be a story it's here? It's just the worst. One of the worst. I've talked about a lot of bad things that have happened to me. This is for sure on that list, by the way, right up there. I um, the the I was I was enticed to come back. I was I was asked to come back to travel and do advance for John Kerry. And at this point, I had enough experience in the advance world where I was now the lead of the team as opposed to um, a P two. Right, the aforementioned press assistant, and the lead of the team is basically the, the the face of the campaign to all the people with whom you're interacting, and managing all of the, you know, the people that are doing various things: site advance, press advance, crowd control, etc. Um, and we were in Ohio, and the person who slated me on this trip did so because he knew that I was a Springsteen fanatic. I've seen you know, 50 or so shows. And um, Springsteen was scheduled to play at this rally. And there were a couple notable things, the Springsteen story being the most notable. But the the other thing was this was my first experience back in the workforce after two years in Costa Rica when what is now called the Millennials, right, had, had just entered the workforce. So these were all the junior people that were on my team. And you asked me before about what I thought about you know, my personality had made it so I was able to succeed. Um, to and, collaborate. Yeah. yeah and cl- I was flabbergasted at the approach and the personality. I mean, I 
I could not believe the way these people comported themselves as professionals. These people sound so pejorative, and I don't mean it to, but I, I really, like, to the point where I would call people at night and be like, I can't even believe this. Like, and there was no... Attitudes? Or- Attitude. I remember I was sitting... We were, we were in um, a, a, a county in Ohio that was Republican, so we weren't particularly... It wasn't like, let's let's roll out the red carpet and make your life super easy. We sort of had to fight tooth and nail. But there was a lot of diplomacy involved. And I remember sitting in a meeting with the entire, you know, president, et cetera, staff of the university, just trying to get a couple of, you know, necessary concessions to this event. And the site person, um, who, by the way, is a lovely person, uh, was had the most aggressively bad attitude and was mouthing off to the point where I was like, can we just take a minute? And I had to take him out of the room and be like, you're not in this meeting anymore. I was shocked. If I had, I I had been in his shoes and when I was in his shoes, I knew sit there, keep my mouth shut, be complimentary. I mean, it was a very different thing. That was um, one notable thing from that trip. The other super notable thing from that trip was, um, you know, one of the things that you have to do when you uh, are an advanced person doing a big site like that is to make sure that you have a backup generator. It's real important. <laughs> um, and I knew this, right? So I did my job and I made sure via my site person and the contractor that they had hired to, man- to run this event that we had a backup generator, which was a relief when our generator failed and we didn't have power shortly before Bruce Springsteen was set to go on stage. Except it turns out they didn't bring the backup generator. They had tried to cut corners on price and just not told us. I never told you. It was like a two-hour delay. He was furious. I was the, again, as I said, at the face of, of, of the campaign. I was the face of the campaign. Meanwhile, um, uh, the one of the site people on the campaign who was sort of dealing with him, like his um, person that walked him to his room and made sure he had water, you know, because I was out there running around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to figure out how we were going to get this electricity problem solved. And he thought she had hung the moon. She was so helpful. She was so lovely. I mean, I don't think she was not a Bruce Springsteen fan, but she wasn't a fanatic, yeah. right? And I was the incompetent one that like, the you know, it was... Yeah. It was so mortifying. And, so, and I remember she, you know, at the end of the night, I was like, in tears. I couldn't believe it. My idol here I was. I was like at my worst. Because also I was like sweating and frazzled and trying to solve the problem and snapping at people. And, you know, it was really awful. I think after two and a half hours, it was resolved. And, you know, I think we might have even lost some of our crowd. I mean, there was a whole host of reasons that it was just a disaster. And I was in tears. And I remember Lisa came up and she was like, look, he gave me his harmonica. And I was like... <laughs> Just end it. Like, this is just going to walk into traffic right now. So what do you do in those situations? It doesn't sound like you've, you know, you've largely succeeded, but what do you do in those situations where, and not that that was even your fault. It sounds like the people underneath you, but then it comes down on you. What do you do when something you're a part of fails? How do you, how do you cope with that? How do you pick yourself up and go on? Is there, do you think you're better than other people no. with that? Or no. do you kind of wallow no. in it for a little I, bit? Well, I, like, I'm still traumatized by that. I don't view it, like, did I succeed? Like, did, did the event eventually happen? Yes, to me, it still was a failure. You know, it was, you know your job as an advanced person is to make sure that these events go off seamlessly. Nobody, yeah. not your principal, not your guests, and not your crowd wouldn't ever notice that there was something. And there are plenty of problems for every event. But, like, you're, if you've done your job right, 
nobody notices, right? That was not the case for this. I took it very personally, as I've taken most of my failures very personally. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone does. I certainly don't enjoy failing. Um, and, you know, in that moment, all you can do is try to make it work, right? And to, to remain calm. I I've certainly didn't remain calm. I don't think, I mean, I remember my heart pounding out of my chest. I remember losing patience with people, which is never something I'd like to do. Um, and, and, and to fix the problem. I mean, eventually we got the power running and we were able to hold the event. But the second it was over, it was like waterworks, yeah. ultimate failure, terrible. And I'm still traumatized. I still think about it. Yeah. And I, even to the point where friends of mine who know how sensitive it was to me will needle me every once won't in a while. Won't bring it up. Yeah. No, they will. <laughs> actually, they will bring it up. They'll, oh, they will oh, needle, needle you with they'll it. They'll needle oh. me with it because they know it's like a, you know, a horrible moment. And and so so after that, I mean, it, it is crazy to um, to think about all all of these different full on you know careers. But so so after Carrie, you said you came out here, you Fox and the Yari Film Group, um, and then you became a student of of yoga and you started teaching. teaching. Yeah, yoga I was in I LA. Had, in LA, yeah, I had started um, taking a lot of yoga at this beloved. Jivamukti Yoga Studio in New York City. And when I moved out, and I did it in Costa Rica, um, and when I moved out here, I started uh, taking a lot of yoga classes. And to the point where I, you know, the, always the teacher at the end of the class is like, we're going to be starting a teacher training. If you want to, if you're interested in teaching or you just want to deepen your practice or whatever it is. And I was like, sure, I'll, you know, I can scrape together the money to do this. And so I did the 200 hour training. And then I continued and did the 500 hour training. And uh, then I had, and then of course, this is, this is like a classic me thing, right? It wasn't enough to just have done that to deepen my practice. Now I'm like, well, I've got this training and I spent this time and money. So now I'm going to have to be a teacher, right? Anybody else in my shoes would have been like, well, that was great. And I'll continue to take yoga classes and some workshops and I'll love it. No, not me. I had to pound the pavement and I already had a full-time job, find a job. I was teaching yoga in the morning before work. I was teaching on the weekends it was like nuts, um, but uh, I loved it. It was great. It was a. It was sort of a release. What drove you to do that? What like what drives you? Because like you said, not everybody would do that. What was driving you? Matt, what drives me? I don't know. I. It's really like, I. I don't. Maybe it's a work ethic thing. It's a perception thing. It's a, you know, a need to succeed. I don't really know the answer to that. There's another. Um, Another anecdote, when I lived in Costa Rica, I, as I said, I had no agenda. I was just learned to surf. I bought a guitar. I took lessons. I taught myself Spanish. I bought a textbook, you know, and read up on it. And I was approached by an American who owned a day spa to, to work there as a receptionist. And I was like, I got a lot of time on my hands. I'll just go, you know, earn some spending money and be a receptionist a few hours, a few days a week. And then that turned into... Can you manage the spa? And then it was like a thing when I was a manager of like the number one spa and it was like a high and it was like, what am I doing? Like the whole point was to come here and to, you know, separate myself. from. It's like I couldn't even for what for just for two years of a purposeful sort of relax break. I couldn't even lay off. You can't help yourself. I can't yeah. help myself. And I don't I don't really know what what that's about. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, because part of it just seems like a real thirst for knowledge and for learning and progress. And then I don't know if it's, if it's you or if it's the fact that you're 
maybe you're really good at it. So people go, oh, well, I kind of want her on my team. And then they give you an offer that feels good. And then you're like, all right, well, I'll try it. And then next thing you know, you're in too deep. So that is, I think that that is exactly what I think it is. And you asked me before what the sort of one thing that has propelled me to success and the various things I've done. And I was talked about relationships and, and work ethic. And I think both of those things are really important, but I think the, the key is competence. And I think there's a lot of people out there who don't have a work ethic and maybe aren't that competent. And so when an employer gets a hold of somebody who's competent, who can get stuff done and has the work ethic to do it, that you, you know, you end up in too deep, as you said. Next, you know, you're promoted beyond what you ever even wanted in the first place. I don't even want a job now. I'm managing the stay spot. Yeah. But interestingly, as I said, in Hollywood, I don't think that that's so much at a premium. Competence yeah. is like uh, is like back burner. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's so interesting and sad for me who is in the entertainment business to hear that. And super competent. You're good at what you like, do, by the way. I mean, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's kind of like, huh, well, that's not valued, but that's the thing that I've maybe always been taught. Maybe if you just be a little snakier, yeah. you're going to really rock it I right to the yeah, top. Yeah, maybe that's what I'll do. Um, that's so funny. So, so then, so at which point... Um, you know, when you were teaching, you're teaching yoga out here, you were also working. Is that when you met Chris? Yes. Yeah, so I was working at Fox and I met okay. Chris. Where he still is. He's, what no, is he? No, he just left. Oh, He's he now did. at Paramount. Oh, okay. He went with Jim Giannopoulos, who formerly was the chairman of Fox. And is he, he's like, what, like a head of, uh, one of the heads of, of uh, he, marketing Paramount, for the He's a, He's studio? the branding officer. He's like a chief communications officer and strategic branding executive for the studio. He's been, he's worked really closely with Jim Giannopoulos, who runs the studio for a number of years, like over a decade. They have a great working relationship, a really good understanding of each other. And um, Jim's, you know, he's, he's working to turn Paramount around and uh, he's relying on Chris and um, it's been exciting and fun for him. That's great. And uh, so, and so for you, what did that, you know, you had, you had kids, you have two boys Yes. and you, um, so you stopped, you kind of pulled yourself out of the workforce yes. to have kids. But then you talk a little bit about that, like, you know, just the experience of having kids and how that has shifted you and shaped you. And then the the closet business, which, you know, it was another thing. Out like, of left field. I, well, yeah, like Super I remember hearing field. that. And the next thing you know, it's like, she's doing really well with it. <laughs> I don't, it's, it really is amazing how, how, how quickly I did well with that. But so for, for, for those who don't, you know, don't know what we're talking about, I, I took myself out of the workforce and had kids. Um, I, it was sort of an experiment to stay home with them. It it wasn't again, something that uh, spoke directly to my nature. Um, but you know, I, I was like psyched to see what it was about, you know, the, the staying at home thing. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, applied myself in the same way I've applied myself to other things, you know, like never miss a breastfeed, you know, all these things where it's like, just take a load off. But I never could really do that with my kids either. It was, you know, which is nice. So I had a really, the upshot is that I had really nice first years with both of my kids. Um, But when they started to become a little more independent, and by that, I mean, you know, like crawling and walking or starting to do activities in school and that kind of thing. I, I mean, it was pretty quickly that I figured out I needed to be doing other things. 
And I had, as a hobby, I've had an, an interest in, um, in fashion, not as long as you might think, given what I do now. Uh, I, I, anybody who knew me in high school think like when I tell them what I, uh, that I'm a personal stylist now is like mouth agape because I truly went through high school and college <laughs> in like oversized track pants and a baseball hat and running shoes. I mean, it was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, and so it, it's bewildering to them and somewhat to me that I've ended up here, but I developed an interest, I think probably when I started buying my own clothes. So right, right. Uh, when I had my first job, um, in, in fashion and, um, you know, fostered it just through my own sartorial interests and then uh, started to get approached by friends who had a, a conundrum or a wedding to go to or certain requirements and what could I, you know, I need to find this or can I get a gift for this person? And I started sort of consulting just with my friends, not in, a, uh, there was no money changing hands. It just was, a, you know, our dynamic. And then they started to say, I would get phone calls from uh, you know, Marisa told me that you're really good at this stuff and I have to be in this wedding and it's white dress and it's got to be between my knees and my ankles. And, you know, he, where can I? And so then I and it was and then it was friends of friends and and I was being pushed by a number of my close friends to monetize it, which again, your competence got you into something that you were right. planning on getting. Into. Right. I guess that's true. I, I didn't, but you know, here's the other, here's the weird uh, sort of counterbalance to that. I was like frozen in fear. I was like, well, I don't even, what do I do first? Get a business card? I mean, do I set up a corporation LLC? Do I just start charging people? I didn't even have, I was so overwhelmed by the idea of what it would, what it would take for me to turn it into something that I just resorted to inertia. I was like, I'm just going to keep plugging along doing what I'm doing. Cause I don't know how to set this up. So, um, one of my best friends recognized this inertia, and she has one of her close friends from college had a uh, has a personal styling business in Boston called Dressed Inc. And um, she had her friend call me. This is a woman named Lori Lutton, uh, who's now my business partner. Spoiler alert. Uh, and I know Lori because uh, Lauren, they were close in college and I visited Lauren in college and after college. And so I've known Lori over the years. And she called me just to say, you know, Lauren told me you're thinking about doing this. And I just want to tell you that I think that you're the exact right personality for this. And I absolutely think, what can I do to help you figure this out? And then in our conversations, we sort of came up with this idea of her training me in her way of styling and then becoming their, their West Coast half. Um, and I was like, and you know, they had a website, they have an account. So they took care of all the, the resources yeah, like yeah, the were there. And the I was like, this is the push I needed. It was really serendipitous. And um, there was a lot more learning than I expected. It was like a whole course. Uh, and it's because the type of styling that I do and that Lori taught me how to do uh, is really like, there's a lot more strategy than you would think. You know, you're not you're not just like, I like this, therefore I want to buy it for your closet. It's, you know, you have to get to know your client and what's their body type and what's their style personality and really put some thought into what makes sense for them and their lifestyle. And because there is so much more strategy, it really resonated with the people that I worked with in the beginning. It felt different to them than anything they've, they've, any advice that they'd received before, whether it was from like somebody at Neiman's or a stylist they'd worked for in the past or never having worked for a stylist, just having the knowledge of how to think about these things was really empowering to them. And as a result, 
the first couple people with whom I worked were so blown away by the experience that they then told like everybody that they, they met on the street, you know, one of them was a, my, a close friend of mine is, is a hairstylist. Uh, and she, her clients were coming to her saying like, what, you look, what's going on here? You look so great. You're so put together. You're so fashionable. What's happening? She's like, you're never going to believe what I just went through. Like, it's everything's different. Life has changed. And I got phone calls from every single one of her clients. And so it took off like that. I mean, it was really quick and fun. It's great. So it was a natural ability on your part combined with incredible training from yeah. someone who had been doing it for a long time and yes. had really figured out the business model. Yes. And the and the, and the the procedure. Right. And and going back to the thing that I've referred to a couple of times, relationship building. Right? So when you're in client business, you really, you know, if you can't have you don't have a good rapport with someone if they don't trust you, they're not going to hire you or they're not going to continue to work with you. I love my clients. Like I want to. I'm going on vacation with one of them this summer. I think that they're really fun and amazing people, and I think they think the same of me. And that's why I keep getting hired. Yeah. Uh, and if I was frosty or uninteresting or you know any of those things, I wouldn't be successful at what I do. Well, I'm surprised to hear when you said, "Yeah, I'm still doing this," because you all you also <laughs> now work for Axios. Yes. Uh, now explain to everybody what Axios is. Axios is. Um, Am I mispronouncing um, it? It's, it's Axios. It's debate. Or? It's a hotly debated topic because okay. it's spelled A X I O S, and it so, means Greek for worthy. Okay. Just, I think that's right. I'm, I'm pretty sure it would be super <laughs> embarrassing if it doesn't mean Greek for worthy. But I'm pretty sure that's what it means. Axios is a um, a media company. It was started by Mike Allen and Jim Vandehei, who are the two guys who started Politico uh, and then you know brought it to extreme success. And this is their new company. It's not new, I guess, anymore. It's a year old. Over a year, their first uh, issue was just prior to the Trump's inauguration, right? And 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 their success, uh, I think, um, is due uh, mostly in part to the ex- extremely talented team that they've assembled, including themselves, of course, and Roy Schwartz, who's the other uh, founder with them, and um, and also that they started this news media company right when Trump came into office, like the, the, there is no shortage of things to cover, things to discuss. Um, and it's been incredibly successful. They started with newsletters. I, the way I found out about it was because a friend of mine from in politics back in in the, in the Clinton white house was one of, is, is, is one of their senior staffers and one of the first people that was hired there to do all their external facing stuff. And she sent an email to all of her friends saying, working at this new company. This was a year and a half ago again. I'm working at this new company, our first issues this week, sign up. And I was like, I'll support a, a friend, I'll sign up. And I signed up for this newsletter. It's Mike Allen's, uh, his daily AM newsletter. And it was like, I'm completely addicted. I've never missed a day since then. I don't get out of bed until I've read it. And their whole concept is, uh, Smart brevity, right? It's I think they've even trademarked it now. So they they're figuring out what you need to know in the world, and not just in the Trump world, but in 
tech and uh, uh, work future and science and energy uh, and uh, business and finance. They have one of the top reporters in business and finance. Um, what you need to know in, in a couple of paragraphs and why you need to know it. And and you and they've expanded to other newsletters. As I said, they now have Dan Premack doing business and um, uh, Ina Freed is doing tech up north. And they, they have the best of the best covering all these topics, various newsletters and a stream. And I, I'm mostly addicted to Mike's uh, AM newsletter um, just because of my background in politics. And I seriously read it and I go through my day and I'm like the most knowledgeable person around because yeah. I've read. You I, I receive it because of you from a while ago. I now have to start reading it. I've yeah. only read it a few times. I'm telling I'm like, you, once you I do, still have you guilt. Get... That was like the smallest you could give me. And I still have guilt because I don't really get it, to it. It's, it's you know, it's a five minute read as opposed to like you, you could. It, spend 10 minutes reading a deep dive article, which, and they're amazing, by the way, in the New York Times or Fortune or whatever it is. And um, and the, and they, they have their value. And Axios will sometimes summarize something from there and then link to it um, and aggregate pieces like that. But for the most part, if somebody who just wants to, like, represent as somebody who's engaged and you know that's me i'm i'm engaged i want to know what's going on but i don't have eight hours a day to yeah. read all the things i need to read so here it is in one little email that comes into my inbox when i wake up in the morning and i can sit down at any dinner table and it sounds like i am the most well-read person and you know it's so anyway the same friend who sent the email to me to, i'm working for this new company and our first newsletter is she reached out to me at the end of last year to say that they were looking to ha hire somebody in Los Angeles as a consultant to help them raise awareness for Axios in LA. They've done extremely well everywhere, really, for a new company, um, but especially in uh, DC, where they're based, and New York, uh, because they have this finance, you know, this great finance reporting arm, and um, San Francisco because of their tech reporting. And so now they're really trying to crack LA in the way they've cracked these other big markets. Uh, and I'm just trying to help them do it. And you know? so you're able to do that while also still working for Just Inc. Yes. Or working with your business partners with Just Inc. Is that right? Yes. You, yeah. Okay. The, the difference is, um, well, I, the, so the, again, I got lucky that when they brought me on to ramp up with Axios was right after Christmas, right? Um, I started like January 2nd with them or something like this. And the styling world is dead then because everybody just spent lost their shirt on holidays and travel and Christmas presents. Um, and then they're coming back and they're like, I got to lose the 10 pounds I got, I put on over the holidays. I'm not buying any clothes. There's nobody, you know, usually around April it starts to pick up, but then there's taxes, April 15th, people aren't spending money then. So almost like clockwork right after tax season, I start getting phone calls from my clients. Long story short, I had four months to really focus on Axios and which was, you know, the ramp up. And now once now you sort of just, get systems going, along. you can. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm able to because I schedule my clients, I'm able to pick and choose. You know, I, I can't do Wednesday afternoon because I have a baseball game. I don't have a lot of client work next week because I have some Axios meetings, uh, some business development meetings. They're coming to town. And, you know, when you're in charge of your own schedule, you can balance it that way. Yeah. So. It's, it's amazing. You know, you've done like, you, you know, 15 lifetimes worth of, of work. Um, Some would say I have no stick-to-itiveness. Uh, yeah, you can, you can interpret it, you know, yeah. the, your friends that needle you. Maybe right. you could say that, but I don't, I don't know if I agree. Uh, so, you know, we'll, 
just in closing, I'm just thinking of what if you could, um, you know, people are listening that would be, I think, inspired by what you've been able to do and your ability to. It, it seems to you that to me, it seems like you have this approach of like, it's never too late to start something. So what is what is your advice if you could give someone who's listening and they're kind of they've got an idea to do something they've got uh you know they think well it doesn't really make sense on paper how would you speak to them what would you say to them to kind of encourage that or discourage that whether well know, i don't i wouldn't want to discourage anyone but i also like Want, would want you don't want to, to give be them real, false, right, yeah, like be, be realistic, realistic about yeah, that's it. What I'm saying. Um, and and probably a good way to do that is to take to take counsel, right? I mean, I you know, I, I, everything I've done, I've I'm a t- I'm super indecisive, right? I can't decide ever. Really? I, yeah. I mean, I decide, right? But I agonize first, yeah. right? Right. Um, uh, and I and I've really relied on on. Um, Friends, family, uh, professional friends, colleagues, whatever. I, I always am, t- you know, Lori Lutton had to call me to push me into doing styling. Uh, Evan came to me with Axios. I got very lucky that way. But, you know, and and, and when she did, I, ha- I heard from a lot of my friends, like, I think you'd be so good at this and here's what you could bring to the table. So I think definitely take counsel, like, lo- you know, look around you. Whose opinion do you trust? Um, and they can... You know, and the chances are that they have a breadth of experience that you don't have and they can lend you advice about either how to go about things or whether to go about it at all. Uh, and that that would sort of be the first step. And then, you know, being realistic. And um, I would say develop a business plan. But believe it or not, I've never, ever done that. I don't even I wouldn't have any. Idea. Yeah, then don't say that. if that's how you do. <laughs> So it's more fo- follow the string of inspiration and then see. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think you got to be passionate about it. Yeah. You know, I would almost say that it's easier to start something later in your career because you know who you are professionally and as a person and you know what you're capable of, you know what you're good at. Even more importantly, you know what you're not good at, right? And you can look at an opportunity and say, you know, if this is a passion of mine, do I have all the necessary, you know, is my personality appropriately going to be able to bring all these things to, to bear? Uh, or like, you know, don't don't go into client work if you're an introvert, you know, that kind of a thing. You, you might not know that about yourself at 22, but you probably really know that about yourself by the time you're 35 or 38 or, you know, whatever age. Uh, and I mean, honestly, the, the old you, people agonize over age, right? I really, you know, and then there's people who say like 40 is the new 30. I really feel like the older I get, the better life gets because you, you know yourself, right? And you know what you can put up with and you know what you want to pursue and it makes all the difference in the world. There's a lot less trial and error. Error. A lot but, less error. Oh, you shouldn't have corrected yourself. I was like, that's a great place to end. No, it is. Sorry. <laughs> I'll say it again. A lot less trial and error. There you go. Boom. We're done. Um, thank you so much You're for so being welcome. here. You are awesome. Thank oh, you. You are awesome, Matt. Thank you for doing this awesome podcast. Okay. Takeaway time. As I said up top, it's dangerous to compare yourself to someone like Isabel because she's done so much at such a high level, but she did leave some clues for us. And among them, here are what I took to be the top takeaways. Number one, 
Be a great collaborator. Be easy, hold your tongue, work hard, get along with others, not in a spineless backbone kind of way, but in a way where you're trying to find solutions before you find fault. In other words, be a team player. And two, what she later admits toward the end of the interview is that what really set her apart is that plainly said, she's competent. And people are desperate to keep competent people on their team. Now, while this may sound daunting to some of us as we're thinking, I'm not competent, how can I become competent? Isn't that just a God-given ability? I think there's actually hope in it. Go study, go practice the thing that it is you're telling everyone you want to do. Get better, learn the tools, the skills, take courses, read books, watch movies, do whatever it takes to get better, get experience, try and fail and get better, and eventually you too can be competent. So, Work hard and play well with others. These are the top two takeaways I'm getting from this dynamic woman named Isabel White. I'm very grateful to have had her on the show, and I'm grateful to have had you listening. If you're getting something from this podcast, do me a favor. Tell your friends and family. Leave an iTunes review. Help us build this audience so we can have more of an impact on the world. And we'll see you next Friday. Thanks for joining us. 